Hey there, listeners. Thanks for joining us again. This is the second part of our discussion on designing for the conversation. If you haven't listened to the first part, go do that now. We actually do say interesting things this time. I swear. Enjoy! Uh, Okay, so what I wanted to talk about was bringing up the idea of the play loop and sort of um, explicitly designing for the conversation of the play loop. Uh, We sort of touched on it already with the player input, mechanical output, player input loop. Um, But are there, like for example in Ashes, I, I design for this sort of um players have way to earn experience built into the game they want to go do a thing the game gives the gms tools or i'm not gonna say gm the seneschal tools to put things in front of the players that would entice them to go do stuff um that's really the core loop of of ashes and then there's little loops along the way but it's really players have incentive seneschal has the game provides the seneschal with things to incentivize the players players go do the thing seneschal re-incentivizes the players with something else um and then it breaks off little conversations in combat and adventuring or conversations with npcs um in a similar fashion where the game tries to provide a, a blueprint for the seneschal to run to sort of take the mechanics out of the contention until the Seneschal needs them to jump in and resolve something. Um, I've tried to design for sort of simple overall rules that can be readily applied broadly. Uh, You know, I can't, I can't actually think of, I I couldn't actually delineate the core loop of my combat at the moment. I guess it's pretty much the same. What, what I was saying is there's, I think what Rob is getting at in his um, discussion of Ashes itself is a very, is a variant play loop of what he laid out in the intro, which is, huh. okay, he, he said um, player input, mechanical output, and so on and so forth. The variant is narrative input narrative output and a Ah. lot of that happens when it's just narrative progress between a player and gm or player and another player that doesn't involve it doesn't involve rules at all that's the self-sustaining narrative yeah Hmm. yeah that's a really important thing to talk about also like because that that is another that is another play, play loop that maybe isn't given as much consideration in many places. I think that's exactly right. I I, th- I think there's a, there's a subliminal desire to impose mechanics into every part of the mechanic of the conversation that we're even where, even places where they don't belong hmm. because it's, it's part of, the of what many designers think is designing a game is putting the rules into everything right so do you think there's value in 
designing an area where we don't engage mechanics, like explicitly designing that area. I don't know how far you can, how much further you can go than if a conversation, if a fictional conversation is happening, let it happen. Mm-hmm. But don't what try if... to drive it with rules. Mm-hmm. Okay, I I generally agree with you, but what if, for example, you're playing a game where you have rules for social interactions, um, like what happens when someone does something that invokes one of those rules? Um, See, at that point, to me, it's always a choice whether or not those rules need to be invoked. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, and I think that. It doesn't, they're not the same. Those situations aren't always the same. Conversation sometimes is just a conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's more. The reason I asked about, or sorry, what came to mind when I asked about whether if we design blank spaces to just quote role play, um, Blades in the Dark puts in its play loop uh, a free time basically where we can go and sort of explore on our own as our character and essentially do whatever we want we're not restricted to um what we uh although we are sort of restricted in the sense of we can't take that free round and do downtime action or whatever but we can just go you know talk to our neighbor if we want Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Right, right. Because I, I was going to interject that Blaze in the Dark actually does a lot to put structure on that, on downtime. Right. But you weren't but, talking about the downtime. I, I see what you're saying. Okay. Right. But they, he structurally puts in a... a can, do I think something. It's, yeah. Yeah. Like, go ahead and do whatever you want. And I right. think it's called free or free play. Uh, uh, I don't remember. I, I'll, I'll have to look that up and, and maybe get get back to the... Mm-hmm the group on that but i i believe it exists i'm sure it exists i believe that's what it's called yeah okay, okay. that makes well, sense the, the kind of loop i'm kind of most directly talking about is let's say the characters are in throne room and they're they're talking with the king and they've just come back from doing whatever thing that benefits the king and the conversation isn't about the reward for that or potential you know further opportunity it's just about being a bunch of people in the game world yeah okay. or it it could even be about you know well, you know, since you just did this, I have this thing I need done too. And then there's the exposition of Thwomp, there's the next adventure hook. Right. That's, mm-hmm. and then the players can, in, you know, just natural fictional conversation. Yeah. A chance for players to drop backstory bomb. Sure, sure. What yeah. I, what I think is interesting in those cases is that you're saying you really don't want the mechanics to get in the way of the fictional conversation that um, the, the check there is to say um, 
we're only going to invoke these mechanics or these rules when there is no moving forward in the conversation without it. Because I know that I've done this when I've GM'd where a player would do take an action that would normally involve a role. Um, and I would say that I enjoyed their description so much of what they wanted to do that I just said it happened exactly like that. Like, I didn't make them roll. I just said, that is fantastic. Like, continue with the fiction. Um, and I think that that becomes a um, almost the incentive is that I want to reward players to be able to bring that to the table and say, this is the fiction that we're all creating together. And that's my way of rewarding them is that I've taken the chance out of them failing the action. And I just say that the narrative that you've built is so compelling that that's what we want to pull forward. Um, yeah, that's, that's entirely valid. There's, there's also the point of don't call for a role where it won't matter. Mm -hmm. um, that's a big one. Yeah. 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 Frivolous rolling or, or useless rolling. Or like if, 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 if you can establish the stakes beforehand and neither fork is interesting, don't do it. Mm. That's, that's another one. And that, that sort of brings in the save or die role to me, but that's, that's maybe a little further down the line. What are you going to say, Fred? Um, what was I going to say? Oh, um, yeah. Well, I think my main, my main thing is uh, generally my thoughts on that is if failure isn't interesting, they should just succeed. Um, you know, mm -hmm. if, if it's just, you know, if, if failure only means nothing, um, then they should probably just succeed. But I, I think this actually gets to a point that I was wanting to make, and I, I've kind of crystallized this point, I guess, in my mind as we've been talking. But, and it's the simple statement that rules define what matters in the conversation. Um, and I don't think that's, I think that might be more of a, um, like that thinking I think comes from a kind of Power by the Apocalypse style, though it's more ubiquitous than that. But um, like when I, when I was thinking about the moves in, in like Apocalypse World, Monster Arts or whatever, um, one of the things they do is that they define then what matters in the conversation. So when you say something, um, if a rule corresponds to it, you're supposed to roll dice. Uh, like when Car when Car was talking earlier about like the conversation that is between two characters, I was like, oh, okay. In Monster Arts, if you if you're just having conversation, you probably won't roll anything unless you try to shut someone down or turn them on, because those are the things that are important within the story you are telling within Monster Arts. Right. I I don't think it's necessarily what's important that dictate the rules. I think it's more so the rules are there to describe what's going to lead to people asking questions about like what happens it doesn't necessarily mean it's important it means that it's going to be an unresolved question that's going to come up and if you have the rule then it just answers it hmm. mm, no i see what you, fred's getting at because usually well, it's important though. it's well because it's the game is saying we've taken effort to delineate this situation and by by delineating certain situations and not delineating others, it is highlighting and thus making some more important than others. Like the like, so the conversation in Monster Hearts, for example, 
is not you don't generally have the option in D&D to shut someone down or turn someone on. Like those are yeah. options that Monster Hearts makes important because it's about a different thing and D&D doesn't D&D has a charisma check for all of <laughs> that, you know? Uh, and so it's it's saying like well, I'm at not best. we're not interested at best a charisma check we're not prioritizing the conversations between characters mechanically they're still important but they're not they're not going to be contentious mm-hmm. yeah you know? uh, and uh, and if we want to go to like like combat which is what D and D does um, the the thing that happens there is that the rules respond when you say. I attack um, or when or, you, you know, whatever, when you say, yeah. I'm trying to move around this guy, you know, mm-hmm. I flank this guy or whatever. Um, then the rules go, okay, you are doing a thing that like we have made to matter, which is different based on the system. Okay. You have to roll this. And that means this. Yep. Uh, yeah, sort of. And as I, as I said, my, my way of phrasing this thing is kind of based in that Powered by the Apocalypse story gaming um, idea rather than something that D&D follows. But I, I think it's, it's more universally applicable than that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, it's, I think it's fairly universally applicable. Um, I think that does... Oh, fuck, I forget who it was. There was, like, someone... I forget his name entirely. Anyway, um, he made a very good point, though, that he said that, like, if what your game is about is not in the rules, then your game's not about that. Mm. I, yeah. Yeah, I've heard yeah. several people say that. I'm mm-hmm. sure it originated from somebody. But yeah, that I don't is know a, who said it originally, but, yeah. Yeah, it's an important point, but that's part of the convers- designing for the conversation, I think, is, like, put put things in your game that you want the players to do and interact with. You know, if you are putting loads of equipment lists in your of your in your game, chances are your players are going to interact with loads of equipment lists. Yeah. Uh, it's just the nature of games, really. I mean, to reel this back for a moment to the previous question of like what's the core loop of your game? Like I took a while to actually think this through and see how it actually works in mine and it basically it does get focused around the basic concept of the game so it's like you start off with character has some form of conflict it's usually an internal conflict but it's unresolved the game confronts the character with the problem usually in a metaphorical sense and the character reflects upon the outcome of the confrontation now, once they've reflected upon it, then the character ends up making a decision about which path of the conflict to follow uh, based on like the reflection which resolves the outcome and becomes and they become stronger because of it. So like both in their personality and like the character's actual strengths. So you do have straight progression from both, but because of your decision, the decision leads to new unresolved conflict, so it leads you basically right back to the start again and forms the loop. Hmm. Okay. But concept is, it's like you have to have 
some unresolved conflict that has to be confronted before you can move forwards. Yeah. Yeah, I... Yeah, you... Okay, sure. That makes sense. One has to have something to do to do something. Yeah, I think the the weirdest part about this when I was thinking about it is that when you resolve the confrontation, you have not resolved the conflict, though. Like, you actually have to stop and have, like, a bit of a down period time where you're like, okay, I have confronted my fears or, like, my innate failings or whatever it is that you're confronting. But it's like, just because you've resolved the confrontation, you haven't resolved the conflict yet. There's actually two separate stages after that where you actually have to think about what that means and then you have to make a conscious decision to say, okay, now that I know what this means and I know like what the options actually are, now I have to decide which option I want to take. So I think that's actually a little weird because I kind of had intended that, but it wasn't like a conscious decision. That's just kind of how it wound up. It's always funny okay. when those things sort of happen when you when it when you sort of design design the game as best you can and try and keep in mind your core philosophies or your core aims and then it comes out and you go oh that's actually what I wanted but I wasn't yeah sure. I didn't know what I wanted until yeah. I got and then I was like oh okay. yeah that that hey. is what I wanted yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's fun it's it's fun to do that for sure I really like that that feeling of like oh, I didn't know the game was going to do this, but it did, and I like it. Yeah. It's a surprising <laughs> thing in game design where you where you, you something occurs that you don't expect, but you, you subconsciously put it in there. Yeah, you subconsciously maybe. put it in there, yeah. yeah. Or you're, because you're, I mean, in game design, we're, we're mimicking patterns of other games, you know, fundamentally. We, we, we start out with, many of us start out with just hacking D&D, or hacking another system, generally speaking, as DMD. Um, and hi, hi, <laughs> hey, me too, man. Oh, uh, no, I mean, I didn't do DD, I'm the weird. Oh, one. <laughs> you did the other, you're the other systems guy, yeah. Yep, well, <laughs> you're just better than us. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> my exalted hack was better than your DD hack, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it might have been, but uh, besides, it's beside the point, but we all start off with these, these, these trying to figure out the patterns of trying to figure out the patterns that are irritating us in the games we're playing so that we can improve them. And it's really hard to figure out the good patterns because it's done so seldomly, like like a really elegant play loop is like really hard to come by. And then even then when you have it, sometimes it can feel too mechanized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, um, there's more to it than that as well. It's like it's there's a lot of ways to do something wrong, but there's only a yeah. fairly limited number of ways to do it right. And yeah. if especially in game design, it's like the right way to do something is not always the same for every situation. Yeah. So it's like even though you have a particular way that works perfectly in one situation, 
like for one game, then you take it to another game, it may not work at all. Right. Mm-hmm. I did want to sort of ask the group. Um, so we put down like natural flow, and this is sort of as opposed to uh, play loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and does anyone have that as a desire for the, what their game or that a desire for the game to be more of that? And how are they going to approach their design? I I think I would I think I would like that. Like that's kind of an idea. At least having it feel natural, naturally. But I still have defined steps within my game. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I'm I'm hoping that in some way, like it'll it will flow naturally because the the way it's set up. I, I'm hoping it'll work. Um, but there's still like there's defined steps. One of the things I was going to bring up at one point um, about that, which I never got to was um, I kind of think that the defined steps are, are trying to give it a more natural flow um, to use that term to, you know, to make it go like, for example, blaze in the dark um, has a specific structure like that, because that's kind of what it's trying to emulate and what people understand to give it that, flow you know it's kind of trying to be that heist movie setup and so it has those particular like okay here's where you do the thing and then there's downtime because you know there's downtime after the after the big job so you have to kind of have a complication and then you do the next job um but i think another oh go ahead no you keep i'm I'm done basically go oh okay no i was just going to interject that another another if people are interested in, in looking at another version of what that looks like um another game that does that pretty well is uh torchbearer which is a totally different, which is the, the sort of the dungeon. It's, it's Mm -hmm. a stripped down version of burning wheel. Uh, but one that is set up particularly for exactly for like old school dungeon delves. Um, and it's all about like what you can carry and then what you can take out of the dungeon, like equipment and encumbrance is very, very, very limited and very specific as to what you can carry. Um, and its core loop has something similar where it's you go into a dungeon, you come out, you do a town phase type thing where you do like buying and selling, interacting with characters, and that sort of wraps up and you do another one. And then you there's actually a seasonal break in winter where it's too, you can't travel anywhere, everything shuts down. And I, I like this sort of idea of like a seasonal loop like that. Mm. Um, I haven't implemented one explicitly in Ashes, although I do have like seasonal timescales, but I really like the idea of like a winter thing. And winter is also, if I'm remembering this properly, winter is when you spend experience by telling stories about your dungeon delve. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I really dig that sort of like we do three sort of like expeditions to come back, tell stories about it, level up, go, mm. you know, and then go back in. And I, that play loop, like really appealed to me. The rest of the game kind of doesn't, but that loop does. And I think there's, Oh, I, you know, I love reading how different games do their loops because there's always something interesting to learn in in like what games find valuable or how they want to direct player attention in certain ways and how they expect players to interact with these loops. I, I really yeah. enjoy reading about it. Yeah, yeah. That that particular loop is is interesting because it by its nature keeps the world turning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, um, 
Uh, just a suggestion. There's, uh, if you haven't read Roryotama, it I have. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. It has yeah. that uh, that seasonal loop. Yes. Um, though it is not as explicit as I think I would like it to be, mm-hmm. but it does still have a setup for it, and it's it's kind of it's nice. Like it, yeah. it fits well with the game, and it's fun. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it, but yeah, yeah, you're right. That's another it's another one. It's it, it's probably like less structured than the way Torch uh, yes. Torchbearer sets it up. Um, but yes, no less, no less uh, loopy and seasonally loopy. Mm-hmm. Seasonally loopy. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird. Um, yeah. Well, so the way, um, at least part of the play loop functions within my game um, is that you're, I, you go from kind of like having a, uh, like a role playing scene where you know you're actively doing things and making roles and trying to um, get things you want and need, trying to cement your goals, stuff like that. And then there's traveling portions, which is basically just you um, lay some dice down to show that you're traveling and give some short narrations. And those hopefully flow naturally between each other, but there's still, it still is a defined step. It's like the torchbearer um, mm-hmm. winter portion, uh, though, you know, more regular. But, uh, so, but I don't think that that necessarily uh, gets rid of a natural flow to the fact, as I said earlier, I hoping that that will reinforce a natural mm-hmm. flow because part of a natural flow is um, having a certain amount of pattern, you know, understanding yeah. that this, you know, I can, okay, I will be in the action for this moment and then you've got some downtime and then there's some action. You can kind of have that, um, up and down that really establishes a flow. Yeah, I mean that is the nature of just I mean just about everything. Like it 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 th- those the the uptime, the action downtime dichotomy exists in every D&D game I've ever played. It's not delineated, but it's there and mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. do different things inside those two windows, but they're less explicit. And because they're less explicit, there's what is it it's i don't want to say more freedom because that's not exactly the right the right framing of it but it's like less less structure there's less structure but it it means that the 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 those downtime bits can go in very unexpected directions um and generally speaking when you have more structure, like in Blades in the Dark or Torchbearer, the, the direction is expected. Like we know we're at the end of this downtime phase, whatever it is, we're going back into the dungeon or going back to the next heist or something like that. And in a game where you don't have that structure, the the players don't oh don't have that next thing in mind for sure necessarily, and that can change. Um, that can change the conversation, you know, that have knowing that something's going to happen definitely adjusts your expectations. And that's something useful to keep on lookout for as you're, as you're building those ports, like how, how would you want to structure it? Because I don't think there's, I don't think either one of those ways is more valid than the other. I think there's just two different ways of doing it. And I think both are, are productive provided that's what you want to do. And you're cognizant of that. But I, I, there's pros and cons for sure. I've come to realize that my approach to the play loop is not through the plot, through the proxy of play loop. Mm-hmm. The, the entire purpose of play loop is to 
maintain narrative momentum. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, that's that's a good thing. Yeah. And I I approach it more directly as how to keep up narrative no momentum. Mm -hmm. Like, what's the mm -hmm. next thing that's going to happen? Right. What's the Ooh. next choice that gets made? Like, without without running it through the sieve of game as a concept. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's storytelling. Let it be a story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think, and, and this is the point that I kind of wanted to get to, at least from my perspective. Like, when we have these defined loops, we tend to give time for everyone to adhere to. Uh, but then when we decide to, if using natural flow as a, as a term, if that's the way we decide to go, it's not mandatory, but I think it's very beneficial to uh, do your best to get the GM on board, as it were, to, to get them to understand what that means, how they, how they approach. Because I think natural flow um it it really depends on the gm to, uh i don't know to to make it work well it, the gm has to sort of let it or uh coax it along yep because yeah, mm -hmm. if you let things flow naturally they're gonna run like this podcast like it's just gonna wander <laughs> off the rails, yeah. And then it'll hit into a brick wall and it'll crash, but then it'll kind of crawl through anyway. And it's like, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. But, well, I think I, we've been very structured today. We've been doing no, good. Yeah, that's that's yeah. the thing, though. It's yeah. because we basically built a play loop into how we're running this. Yeah. And true. one of the nice things well, of a play loop is that it gives you a reward when you do it properly. So actually. We didn't set a play loop. We we set an agenda. Yeah, we set a, like a goal structure. Yeah. So the goal structure it does narrative with like letting it be a story the way I said, or what I think is the meaning of natural flow that I missed is everyone has to be moving in the same general direction in order to keep it going somewhere oh it'll mm -hmm. go somewhere it just won't go anywhere is that the game's meant to go well, <laughs> right, but, if, if, but if you have an agenda or a direction and everyone knows that part of their responsibility at the table is to stay more or less on that header then again it's... even if not everyone knows exactly what direction they're going like, well, you know, it's pretty in, easy, in, like, in the case of most games where the GM knows what's going to happen, but the players don't, like, as long as everyone stays more or less marching in the same direction, then you, you stay on task. And the, and the story can emerge the way it was intended to not necessarily in the direction it was intended to, but the way it's intended to. Well, I think, yeah. I think, yeah, go ahead, Kat. No, sorry. You go right ahead. Um, 
So I was going to say that I think this fits into some of the ideas that I've been playing with as I've been taking notes. Um, and I think what uh, my visualization of how all of this fits in together is that we've got sort of like three states of game that exist. And the first one is this conversation between the two players or between all the players, all the characters in fiction. And then there are uh, reasons that we move from that in fiction conversation to a meta or to a rules-based way of thinking. And then that is resolved through mechanics. So the question is, that, that John had, uh, Jonathan had posed at the beginning was where are we designing towards? Like what, what conversation are we designing towards? And my initial reaction was to design towards the conversation between the characters. But the more I'm thinking of it, the more I'm feeling that what we're really designing towards is what is important enough in the mechanics that pulls you away from that fiction and that steers you in a direction. And whether that's from like the the fiction is going off the rails and we need to bring it back to where we uh, have an established train of thought or an established goal for our game and says, uh, this is something that we have codified in our rules and this is part of what will shape the rest of this game. And I think that's where our game needs to exist. I think that's where we design for the conversation where we say this is an important enough aspect from the fiction that's currently happening to then create mechanics around how do we resolve that and then lead back into the fiction that we want to tell. Well said. Also in, the in, issue that for your, when you're dealing with the fiction for characters, yeah. you, the characters know how to do things that the players don't. So like, if you're going to mm. be like, okay, I want to interrogate this person. Okay, what do you say to them? I have never yeah. interrogated someone before. Right. I have no idea. So in that That's case... That's a different problem, to, even. To design for that kind of a conversation, you basically want to put kind of uh, basic points in there that tell somebody, how do you actually do this? What options are available to them? Do you use, like force coercion do you have like sort of the good cop bad cop thing where you're like doing various things where somebody's trying to provide them good options and someone's giving them uh penalties if they don't like if you want them to be able to do that in the game then designing for the in-character conversation you actually just have to show them what they can do right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of the things i talk about in in legend craft in the chapter where I actually explain what players are supposed to do is <clears throat> I explain that I tell them that there's two perspective that perspectives that they're going to operate in and switch between. And that is the in-game and out of game perspective. And the in-game perspective is obviously the fictional conversation between characters and the narration of their actions and mm -hmm. the boundary of the fiction on the other side of that boundary is the meta conversation where it is yep. operating the rules. Yeah. 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 So I think, yeah. 
I, I wonder if it's worth stating because I, I've come to notice some things where we're we're talking about sometimes talking about conversation very literally, as you know, you say a thing, I say a thing, and mm. uh, but it also seems to be sort of uh, uh, replace like um, game moving forward or flow in a sense where we're, we're saying conversation, but we just mean that the game is moving forward and, and flowing in an acceptable way. Yeah, but how that tends to happen, why and why it's connected, is it, it's the conversation at the table is what decides how the game moves forward. Is I think right, it's yeah, something we're, most we're of really us talking get about main, We're really talking about maintaining momentum and nothing about pace or tone or any kind of nuance of yeah. the momentum. Yeah, momentum, yeah. But I, I just, yeah. you know, I, I just noticed that sometimes we're using it in, in two ways. Mm-hmm. Well, but I, I think that has, I think that's part of the definition we need to use. Um, when yeah, we're talking I agree. About I, this. Yeah. yeah, I agree. It's a good point. Though. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, one thing I'd like to get into before we get too far off topic, because I started <laughs> thinking about this. Like, when we were talking about the idea of you know, core gameplay loops. I was thinking, well, even like D&D does have something that's very attractive to it to a lot of people. And I got to thinking, what is it that's so special about D&D? It's like, it's obviously going to be something simple, fairly straightforward. And I tried to write out its gameplay loop and it came out that it's like, character wants to do something, roll 1d20. And your success or failure leads to wanting to do something else. It's really simple. And the loop kind of is more like a flow chart because it's like, if it's failure, just go back to the start. If it's success, you get like stronger, then you go back to the start. And because of that, it's like it basically encourages the players to consistently try to do something, roll a d20 for it, which gives them presumably if they roll well or they roll often enough that they do well they get stronger and it reinforces wanting to do that loop again because it's so simple it's not a very complex loop but i think there's something to be said for the fact that it's just such a simple thing hmm there's way more to what makes D attractive than just that no, but I th- I think that is play loop, and not all of I, it is positive. No, not all of it is positive. <laughs> I'm saying that it is definitely one of the things that I'm pretty certain is a large yeah. attractive force to it. Is that there's not like some complicated scheme you have to go through. It's not something that's deep or complex. It's like no, it's just yeah. I want to do something. Roll d twenty. There you go. You're done. <laughs> yeah. No. I, but, yeah. I so realize in doing that it it kind of most of the time ignores the alternative play loop i discussed earlier which is narrative input narrative output yes. D&D doesn't have a lot of narrative well it does it's just not explicitly it it has it's, yeah it it's has... very much so implicit in that the way it's set it up it's like when you've accomplished something you want to accomplish something else so it's like you kind of natively want to create your own narrative 
So I think it's actually kind of built in there, just not in the intentional way. I think it actually is more something that just kind of they stumbled into by accident by setting it up so that players want to do something and naturally players will create an organic reason why they want to do something. It's it's an emergent property of the 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 fact that you don't stop playing after one session. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to create a narrative around the two you want it you want something to join the two things you did on two different days together because that's just how life is. Like that's how like being works. You have a narrative of how you got from point A to point B, you know? And I think in games where that's that that's you know, as Kat was saying, it's a simple core loop. You still want that narrative bridge. And I think Carr's point of the it's not explicitly outlining the the narrative to narrative play loop. Um I think it's something that, that hurts D D in the long run. It hurts players in the long run because a lot of players do start on D D. It's the, you know, in yeah. some towns it's the only game that's being run. And sometimes that that lack of that and and can can not I don't want to say damage them, but give them bad give them a set of bad assumptions about all games. Um mm. that takes a long time to unlearn. Um, yes, it is in many ways D and D establishes bad role playing practices. Yeah, well, it, it only by not outlining good ones though, because they they are trusting that the play will emerge from from the act of play itself rather than from the rule set as it has done since the inception of D and D. It just hasn't done it all that well. Uh, it, it is so, they're not entirely wrong when you look at it though like no it's I, I don't not think a they're very entirely wrong i just i just think they could be doing it better oh they could definitely be doing it better no, i'm not arguing that but i'm yeah. saying that and there's no argument they're in Good. a way they are correct though that if they don't provide anything it's naturally just a innate desire from the players to create a narrative like if you don't put anything in the rules about a narrative, they will make one on their own. Uh -huh. Yeah, and, well, right. but and they won't necessarily yeah. have the rules to make a good narrative. Here, here's the ugly game. truth about D and D, and I will take the hit for this: is that D and D and a lot of OSR mindset and old school gaming mythology is really primitive in its understanding of what role-playing is because it took, they took one step and didn't, couldn't conceptualize of the possibilities. And yet here we are 40 years and four and a half editions later and D and D has still not embraced what they didn't conceive of in the first place. Okay, so to not talk about D and D, um, fiction first rules. Uh, I know we've brought up um, Blaze in the Dark before, and I think that that's a good starting point for a lot of people when we talk about fiction first, uh, because it has a very explicit definition of what that is, and it's where a lot of people have encountered it. Mm -hmm. uh, but the the fiction first is also comes from the probably the apocalypse world mindset of to do it, you have to do it, which is kind of the, the saying, if you want, you know, if something happens within the mechanics, you should have done something within the fiction to make that happen. You should say, 
you know, you should be, you know, having that conversation with somebody and then, okay, Jessica, fuck you. And then roll your shut someone down, roll for monster hearts or, <laughs> um, in Brides in the dark, say, uh, I'm going to, you know, crawl along this wall and then roll your, um, I can't remember what the stealth one is, but the, it's prowl. 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 Roll your prowl. Yeah. Thank you, Cavoir. Um, but that, I, I think that that's an important, uh, at least for me, my understanding of what is designing for conversation, because that, that reactionary way that you do that really helps to um, push the conversation and also to, you know, we've talked about this loop before that this sets up, which is the mechanical action fictional um, response, although this is more on the side of fictional action mechanical response. Um, right, which mm-hmm. which means fiction first is not narratively reactive; it's narratively proactive. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's I that's think what I really like, like about there, it. Yeah. I think ahead, this Jonathan. is like a person personally for me. This is a state that all role playing games should exist in, and it doesn't have to be explicitly in the rules to play any game like this. Like you can very easily play D and D fiction first, and just say, mm-hmm. "Oh, I." It, it just—it's a most people comment on the DM. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, you say, I, "I come into the room and I look around, and I do this and that," and then the DM should say, "Oh, it sounds like you're trying to perceive, you know, whatever." And it's like, "Yeah, that's it. That's it." So you roll, and I think that it doesn't need to be. It can be very explicitly explained. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily need to be, but I think um, there's value in it. the the problem with with d and d's approach and how it how it doesn't so you can so players, as you pointed out, can are often going to fall into the fiction first uh, modality, right? Where they describe something that their character is doing. The GM goes, okay, make a roll. Totally happens all the time, right? the 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 place where it goes off the rails, is in combat where you are now looking at a list of discrete abilities and a list of discrete abilities outlines what you specifically are allowed to do mm-hmm. rather than tell you rather than give you boundaries where in, in which you can act freely. They tell you this spell does this much damage when you use it in this exact way at this range costs this much, whatever. It's very, very, very rigidly outlined. Um, yeah, D and D combat is basically a string of false choices. Yeah, you can look <laughs> at it that way. I, I I don't think that's I don't think that's a necessarily bad conception or of it. Choices that the that the rules want to want you to make. Yeah, false. Yeah, no, I I, I think false choices is, is is fairly accurate because there's always going to be a best play, um, and usually that's pretty obvious, and so it ends up being feeling a lot of times. In, this is I'm not the first player to notice this by any stretch of the imagination. It feels like the game's on rails because you're going to stand there and swing at the thing until it dies and then move on to the next thing. And it, you know There there well, is something I'm, that the, I just the way I the way I meant false choice was not in there's always a best choice. It was more of the there is always something else b- besides the list of abilities you're staring at. Ah, I see what you're saying. Okay. Um, well, like D and D trains players to th- to, to look at the list to only yeah. think inside the box. Yes, 
Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's the opposite of the the fiction first thing because they're not considering the fiction first. They're considering the list of abilities first. Um, mm -hmm. There's one thing I also want to point out that I just thought of when you were mentioning like your example of standing in a room. Mm -hmm. Was like I stand in the room, I look about. It's like, well, things like looking for traps is an explicit action in a lot of games, and we're like kind of starting to get away from that. And it's like. If your character is trained for how to find traps and they're in a dangerous position, like in a dungeon, mm -hmm. they're looking for traps. Like you can just assume that the player may not remember to look for traps in every single room because that's not something the player normally does. That's that's that, that goes back to the Colville thing of you have to play your character. You have to know the rules involved in your character. Yeah, if see, that's... Player... Well, well, hang on a second, Car. Hang on. Let her finish. See, the thing I, I don't agree with on this is that this is basically insisting that the player has to have exactly all the same skills as the character instead of assuming that the character, once they have those skills, knows to use those skills passively if it's a passive skill. It's like just looking for traps, for example, as the one that we were on is something that you would do naturally by default it's not something that you actively right. choose to do it's just something that you innately do once you know to do it right but yeah i mean here's now. here's yeah. why searching for traps is an is treated as an explicit action in games it is it is one it, it is one excuse to keep players of those kinds of characters engaged i suppose but i don't think that's because if really if, the, if searching for traps becomes passive then those players can just sit back and assume that the gm is going to tell them when they find traps well I yeah think there's also a problem with the fact that it's basically assumed that only one type of character knows to you know don't stick your into things that can melt it. It's like, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to say that the squishy mage is probably going to be looking for traps harder than the rogue is. <laughs> yeah, well, frequently that, they're better at it, too. That That's an issue with class setups. Well, not, not necessarily with play in general. Like, once you have anybody who is able to be specialized at doing that kind of action, then you basically run into a situation where it's like, why isn't everybody doing this? Why has it come down to just one person who's specialized in doing something that everybody should be aware of? This should be like second nature to any kind of adventurer who wanders into a dungeon in D&D. Or I other think games, not so much. Yeah. I mean, I think we're kind of veering away from fiction first to like a, a skill sort of uh, whether how we use skills and um, your rules can say that something is uh, a, an explicit action or not like, but but I think that uh, fiction first keeps everyone engaged and engagement is good for the conversation it's not fiction first doesn't always uh keep the fiction 
or the conversation moving forward. But I think it's a, a strong tool in that. Um, mm -hmm. And it, yeah, I, th I think. Um, yeah, just it shouldn't be confused with how uh, um, ability checks might work in any specific. Not only, but I think that like how you do ability checks and such, if you think about it from the fictional aspect first, it actually kind of instructs you on what to do. It's like, as we were just covering like the D&D &D side of things, like everybody is an adventurer. Everybody goes into a dungeon. Everybody's used to doing this on a regular basis. This is such a normal thing in the D&D &D universe that it's probably second nature for pretty much any adventurer that they should know to look for traps. This is just something that's standardized in the entire world. Yeah. Logically, yeah, yes, that's true. But having one character that's good at certain things is a concession the game makes in order to make class diversity a thing. Yeah, I'm just saying that if you're using so, because, I mean there's there's fictional the, the problems point you're making the point you're making ultimately if we stretch it far enough leads to the the 4e D&D &D condition of all the classes eventually converge no no I'm not saying that I'm saying that if there's something that is a universal property that everybody should be doing then you shouldn't make that as one of the core defining features of one individual of a group, like party member, class, whatever. Like, don't set that aside as something special if it's universal. Like, find something right. else to specialize. I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I feel like you took my example and sort Sorry. of ran with it. It sounds like <laughs> you don't like the find traps as a specific skill, which is fine. But it I can think as make an perfect sense. It can make perfect sense. Yeah. Like if there are definitely a lot of things like if it's not a world where this is completely normal, then no, you you wouldn't have it as a standard thing. But in the D D world specifically, as that was the example I was using, it doesn't make sense in the fiction for that to happen. In other worlds, it might be perfectly normal for uh, one person to be used to looking for traps because nobody's used to doing that. But it's yeah. but like I said, it's a concession that D&D &D makes in order, in order to function. Yeah, I just don't think it was a very good choice in that particular case because it's like the one game where it makes the least amount of sense for that concession to happen. Is the one game that does it. Yeah. When I think actually time. Zach Sabbath wrote an article said everybody is a thief in D D. <laughs> well, well yeah, because they're all grave robbers. You to loot yeah. the bodies. Yeah, exactly. But but he was saying like more to the point, like everybody is searching for secret doors. Everybody's I mean he's made, he was making he was making the exact same argument. Um I it's it's an argument that's been made before. I think it's fairly reasonable, but I think it's also um dragging on. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah, I I think we've gotten pretty far away from our original way to go. Um but I think uh I'm gonna call it here just about just because we seem to be wandering off a little 
with it. And yeah, I do have to edit these, and it's going pretty long. Uh, <laughs> but as per our agreement, I want to ask if anybody has any final thoughts they'd like to put forward, um, just to wrap us up. Anything that we thought they missed. Uh, just to be clear, we might do a second one on this. I'll cut this out if we don't, but sure. I think it might be reasonable to at some point, if not next time, at some point, carry this on because it seems like we have a lot to say about it. But does anything have any quick thoughts they want to say before we finish up? Mm, let me think for a second. Go ahead. Anybody else? Yeah, um, I'll I'll just toss in mostly what I've taken down from my own notes um, and that I think are my takeaways from what we talked about. Um, I think that there are some tools that we can give or that we can try to design into our game to enable the conversation. Um, and a few of them that I liked for myself were um, establishing the stakes and fictional positioning yeah. via the rules. Um, and I think once you establish that, then the fiction comes as a result. Yeah. Um, if you give the GM tools to smooth the transition, uh, within this loop of uh, your fictional conversation to the meta conversation of how how does this um, particular conversation change or how do we like what are the mechanics that pull that back towards a decision point uh, and to give the GM a, uh, an easy way of doing that whether that's through reducing their mental load or having very uh, consistent rules that are easily applicable across a broad variety of different circumstances um, or broad applicability. Um, that's an easy way of trying to maintain that flow so that the GM isn't referencing constant rules. Um, and then I think overall trying to make the that position of the GM uh, something that is reactive um, where they are working with this like uh, fiction first mentality of whatever is happening in the conversation with with the players. That's where uh, the GM steps in to enable the continuation of that conversation. Um, I think those were most of the notes that I had taken that stood out for me. Mm, I yeah. do think on the topic of like just play loops and talking to the conversation in general just designing anything it, it will come down to incentive incentivization mm -hmm. like you reward people for doing what you want it, it doesn't have to be a reward in power it doesn't necessarily have to be items wealth stats or whatever but even just so much as giving the characters actions an impact on the world in a positive way is good if you don't incentivize it, the players probably won't maintain it unless they create their own incentive. And as long as you leave it up to the players to incentivize themselves, you can't be guaranteed they will. Mm -hmm. I actually That's do favorite. that. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> well, you incentivize the players to provide an incentive for themselves, which means they will create... I, I force them to. There's no yeah, two ways about so, it. I, I was like, this is the first action you're doing in this game. Your career, what game do you want this to be? Here's what, decide on your incentives. You have six choices. Yeah. Otherwise, the game yeah, does not move but, forward. Yeah. But the point is that you have provided an incentive. It's an indirect incentive, yeah. but you're still ensuring that there is an incentive in the game. If you just don't 
even tell the players to make an incentive for themselves, they very well may not do so and then just feel dissatisfied because they're not getting rewarded for anything and they don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, yeah. okay. Uh, part of that is reminding players that the one thing they're incentivized to do is to enjoy the role-playing experience and to to create a compelling story. Hmm. One would hope so. One would hope, yes. <laughs> Some players are not incentivized that way, and it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think they have to feel something rewarding for having done it, don't they? And but I I I, I think like that kind those of are the players that are running a marathon but will only do it for the water they get at the checkpoints. And yet sometimes those people run really good marathons. <laughs> like is that necessarily uh, a bad thing if it works? <laughs> So the, the incentives that we provide uh, will sort of dictate the type of players that we, or our game, or the game, get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's certainly true. Yeah. Well, not entirely. Like, you'll get some players probably that aren't necessarily doing it for whatever incentive you set up. Like, you're going to get, like, a range of players that may have no interest in your game, but they still play it anyway just because their friends are playing it. We would be considered it, very lucky if that were the case. <laughs> well, then then you get into player motivation and whether they realize what their motivation is. And yeah. What I was saying is that... That's a deep hole. Yeah. What I was saying is that there may be explicit incentives within the game, like, I don't know, reward systems and such. But if players can be made to, if players can accept that the, the, the gameplay itself is an incentive to them, their, their, uh, their takeaway is more they get more out of it but the yeah. downside is if you incentivize play then there is a double edge to that sword in that it, if you run out of incentivization for it like you stop getting rewards you tend to stop wanting to play like uh, you see it in any mmorpg where it's like you get better gear for fighting endgame content, what happens once you've defeated all the enemies? You tend to stop playing until the next patch comes out. That's because MMOs don't have an overall... Yeah, the There's no is, narrative flow. Yeah, they don't have an existential uh, incentive. Yeah, it's, it's even more than that, though. It's like, even if people are enjoying the gameplay, like, they love fighting the bosses, it's like, this is my favorite boss fight in the game. It's like, are you going to fight the boss again even though you have all the item drops from it? Well, no. Yeah, that 
That's just gluttony. Yeah. In some ways. Okay, and then. Okay. Yeah, okay. Great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anybody else real quick want to actually talk about conversation? <laughs> no. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> then um, we're done. Uh, Yay! Good night. I think I was just being facetious. I didn't want to step on anybody. If they good night, everyone. Oh, good okay. night, listeners. Nice good night, to see you again, Car. It's good to have you, etc. Right. Yes, good sir. to have you back, Car. Um, yeah, have a good night. Um, design games well. Let us steal things <laughs> from them. Play our nerds. Yes, especially that last part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Y'all a bunch of freaking nerds. Good night. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any further questions, comments, or just want to hurl insults at us, email us at flailforwardpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at flailforward. And hey, if you liked this thing, or super didn't, give us a rate on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks. Have a good week.